The world's skeptics who challenge the value and accuracy of the Bible, and there are millions, have actually never read the book. Their scholars have searched it academically, their students have taken their notes and passed the exams, yet they have never read the book. The author of the Holy Bible is a spirit, and consequently the Bible can only be spiritually discerned. The beauty, power, and promise of the text cannot be carnally discovered. The book is locked, and it truly requires a special key to open Academia simply does not have it. Matthew eleven twenty five and 26, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. The key that opens this miraculous book is faith in Christ, and an ear humbled and reverently bowed down to hear what the Spirit of God has to say. The cover of the book opens at a place Jesus calls born again. If prior to salvation one attempts to read the Bible, one finds that the book will not yield its mysteries. However, when the unsaved repent and turn from their sins, believing upon the saving blood of Jesus Christ, the holy book will most literally come alive. It is gloriously transformed into living water and the true bread that came down from heaven. But academic scholarship cannot attain or contain. Are you ready to embrace the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you allow the childlike faith that God has planted in your heart to spring forth and swallow all your guilt and shame, demolishing the chains of Satan's bondages? Today is your day to partake of the living water and to eat the true bread that came down from heaven. Click on the Further with Jesus for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now for today's subject. God said, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19, The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. God said, Proverbs eleven nineteen. A, as righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. God said, Ezekiel sixteen six, And when I passed by thee, and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. Man said, God didn't make man, man made God. God is simply a figment of man's imagination. Everyone knows evolution made man. There was a big bang, and out of nothing, voila, out we popped. Isn't that liberating? Now the record. Welcome to God Said, Man Said, feature article 871, that will surely once again certify the full supernatural inerrancy of God's holy word, the Holy Bible. All of these powerful features are archived here in text and streaming audio for the building up of the faith and to contend with the devil for the souls of the sons of Adam. Every Thursday Eve, God willing, they grow by one. Thank you for visiting. May God's mercies be renewed unto you every morning. 
God made us and gave us an owner's manual, the ultimate predictor and director of all this life, as well as the instructions to the very journey to the other side. Those who embrace this book are promised life and life more abundantly, even an everlasting expectation of excellent things. Yet the sons of Adam continue to reject it, not because they can't impugn its credentials, but because they are willingly blind. Second Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, For if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them, excuse me, unto them. Jesus explains the phenomenon of carnal man's rejection of the light in John chapter 3, 19 and 20, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. That is the crux of the issue. Welcome to the truth. Welcome to God said, man said, where the Bible is true and righteous altogether, every jot and every tittle, miracles and all. This is the fourth in a series, listing in rapid fashion, glorious proofs of the inerrancy of God's Word, certified true by ancient history, archaeology, biology, geology, ancient societal records, modern medicine, giant global field studies, multiple scientific disciplines, and on. All reasonable doubt has been removed. The question to those looking for proof is, will you come to the light? Proof number 56, Genesis 3, verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. If the woman's desire is not to her husband, marriage stands no chance of success. Why is the woman's desire to her husband? There are numerous anatomical and sociological reasons, but one thing is central to it all, Adam's rib. The first woman was made from Adam's rib. Earlier we mentioned the shock the medical world displayed when they discovered what shouldn't be, Male DNA in the female brain. God said to Eve, Thy desire shall be to thy husband. Proof number 57. Genesis six fourteen through 16. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Some contest Noah's ark on the grounds of its size. They contend the ark wasn't big enough to hold all the animals of uh, uh, all the animal species. The size of the ark, according to the scriptures, was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now, 45 uh, five feet high is about five stories tall. 
It would have taken 17,000 species of animals to sustain all life on the earth. So, in other words, they would have needed 35,000 plus animals, male and female, to fit into the ark. This ark had to be big enough to hold some 35,000 odd animals. The average size of an animal is the size of a sheep. If you took sheep and put them in boxcars, it would take 146 railroad boxcars to hold 35,000 sheep. 146 boxcars. The ark actually had a capacity of 522 boxcars. Number 58. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found the plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. A previous proof dealt with the much maligned biblical account of the Tower of Babel and the scriptural claim that the world once spoke one common language. This excerpt addresses the physical tower itself. The famed ancient historian Josephus weighs in. The place wherein they built a tower is now called Babylon because of the confusion of that language which they readily understood before, for the Hebrews mean by the word Babel, confusion. The Sibyl also makes mention of this tower and of the confusion of the language when she says thus, When all men were of one language, some of them built a high tower as if they would thereby ascend up to heaven, but the gods sent storms of wind and overthrew the tower and gave every one his peculiar language, and for this reason it was that city was called Babylon. In 1899, the German Oriental Society set out on an expedition under the direction of Professor R. Coldaway to examine the famous ruined mound of Babylon, the Euphrates. It took 18 years of excavation. They uncovered the royal seat of Nebuchadnezzar, and at the same time, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens. They also uncovered the legendary Tower of Babel. Proof number 59, Genesis chapter 10 and 11. William Cooper, author of the book After the Flood, spent decades in his research of the world's most ancient documents that are commonly known to the biblically literate as the Table of Nations, found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapters 10 and 11. In these two chapters, the roots of the peoples of the earth are laid bare. Over 100 names and places are listed. This list is foundational to the world's family tree, and from these progenitors the nations were formed. In his introduction, we find the following paragraphs. When I first came across this problem some 30 years ago, I found it most perplexing. 
On one hand, I had the Bible itself claiming to be the very Word of God, and the other I was presented with numerous commentaries that spake with one voice in telling me that the Bible was nothing of the kind. It was merely a hodgepodge collection of Middle Eastern myths and fables that sought to explain the world in primitive terms, whose parts had been patched together by a series of later editors. Modern scientific man need have nothing whatsoever to do with it. Now, it was simply not possible for both these claims to be true. Only one of them could be right, and I saw it as my duty, to myself at least, to find out which was the true account and which was the false. So it was then that I decided to select a certain portion of Genesis and submit it to a test which, if applied to any ordinary historical document, would be considered a test of most unreasonable severity. And I would continue that test until either the book of Genesis revealed itself to be a false account, or it would be shown to be utterly reliable in its historical statements. The test that I devised was a simple one. If the names of the individuals, families, peoples, and tribes listed in the table of nations were genuine, then those same names should appear also in the records of other nations of the Middle East. Archaeology shall also reveal that those same families and peoples are listed in Genesis, or not, as the case may be, in their correct ethnological, geographical, and linguistic relationships. Today, I can say that the names so far vindicated in the Table of Nations make up over 99% of the list, and I shall make no further comment on that other than to say that no other ancient historical document of purely human authorship could be expected to yield such a level of corroboration as that. And I will add further that modern biblical commentators must make of it what they will. End of quote. Timothy Osterholm, in his work, The Table of Nations and the Origin of Races, writes, we can also factually claim that wherever its statements can be sufficiently tested, Genesis 10 of the Bible has been found completely accurate, resulting partly from linguistic studies, partly from archaeology, and more recently still from the findings of physical anthropologists who are to this day recovering important clues to lines of migration in ancient historical times. As implied in verse 32 of Genesis 10, this table includes everybody, meaning that so-called fossil man, primitive peoples, ancient and modern, and modern man are all derived from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. As archaeologist William Albright noted, it, the Bible, remains an astonishingly accurate document and shows such remarkably modern understanding of the ethnic and linguistic situation in the modern world in spite of all its complexity that scholars never fail to be impressed with its knowledge of the subject. Proof number 60, Genesis 41, 41 through 45. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had and they cried before him, Bow the knee! And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphath-Paneah, 
and he gave him to wife Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, and Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. The famous story of Joseph of the coat of many colors who was sold into slavery and was in prison, and how he became the Egyptian kingmaker begins in Genesis chapter 37. Was there really such a man? According to the great Jewish historian Josephus in his account of the antiquities of the Jews, Joseph was honored by favor with the title Sotham Panic, out of the regard for his prodigious degree of wisdom, for that name denotes the revealer of secrets. The next excerpt is taken from Warner Keller's widely read and recognized book, The Bible is History. The town of Medanet el Fayum, lying 80 miles south of Cairo in the middle of the fertile Fayum, is extolled as the Venice of Egypt. In the lush gardens of this huge flourishing oasis grow oranges, mandarins, peaches, olives, pomegranates, and grapes. Fayum owes these delicious fruits to the artificial canal over 200 miles long, which conveys the water of the Nile and turns this district, which would otherwise be desert, into a paradise. The ancient waterway is not only to this day called Bar Yusuf, which means Joseph's Canal, by the local people, but it's known by his name throughout Egypt. People say that it was the Joseph of the Bible, Pharaoh's grand visor, as Arab legends would describe him, who planned it, end of quote. Under the heading, Ancient Egyptian Coins Bearing the Image of Joseph, Jeffrey, author of The Signature of God, writes, Recent research conducted on previously overlooked Egyptian coins confirms the biblical story of Joseph and his role in government service in ancient Egypt. In 2009, archaeological authorities from the Egyptian National Museum announced that a cache of ancient coins had been rediscovered. Initially discovered, Almost a century earlier, the coins had been in storage. They were uncovered in the vast storage vaults of the National Museum and the Antiquities Authority. Cairo's Al-Haram newspaper reported that the coins bear the name and image of the biblical Joseph. On its website, Israel National News reported that the Egyptian archaeologists discovered many charms from various eras before and after the period of Joseph, including one that bore his effigy as the minister of the treasury and the Egyptian pharaoh's court. Proof 61. Genesis 41, 29 through 31. Behold, there came seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. And there shall arise after them seven years of famine. And all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land. And the plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of that famine following, for it shall be very grievous. The academic middleists challenge, but as one should expect, they are minimalized by the truth. Researcher and author Grant Jeffrey, in his 336-page book, The Signature of God, writes under the section heading, Joseph and the Seven Years of Famine. Listen to the following. An intriguing inscription confirms the Bible's account of the seven years of great plenty, followed by the seven years of famine when Joseph served Pharaoh in Egypt. This inscription was discovered during the 19th century in southern Saudi Arabia. The inscription was found on a marble tablet in a ruined fortress on the seashore of Hadramaut in present-day Yemen. An examination of the writing suggests that it was written approximately 1,800 years before the birth of Christ, a time that corresponds with the biblical narrative about Jacob and his twelve sons. 
This inscription was first rendered in Arabic by Professor Hendrik Albert Schultens and was later translated into English by Reverend Charles Foster. We dwelt at ease in this castle a long tract of time, nor had we a desire but for the region lord of the vineyard. Hundreds of camels returned to us each day at evening, their eye pleasant to behold in their resting places. And twice the number of our camels were our sheep, and comeliness like white doves, and also the slow-moving kind. We dealt in this castle seven years of good life. How difficult for memory its description. Then came years barren and burnt up. When one evil year had passed away, then came another to succeed it. And we became as though we had never seen the glimpse of good. They died, and neither foot nor hoof remained. Thus fares it with him who renders not thanks to God. His footsteps fail not to be blotted out from his dwelling. Proof number 62. Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 and 22. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. Archaeologist David Rawl, highly acclaimed and credentialed, writes in his book, Pharaohs and Kings, A Biblical Quest, the following. In the previous chapter, I noted that an analysis of the graves at Tel Ed-Daba has shown that there were more females than males in the burial population of Avarice. I suggested this could conceivably reflect the story of the calling of the Israelite males described in Exodus chapter 1, 15 through 22. A similar picture emerges from the Brooklyn Papyrus, and in his commentary, William Hayes, the editor of the document, remarks on the problem of determining the origins of this large Asiatic slave population, and then goes on to ponder the high proportion of female slaves listed in the papyrus. By applying the new chronology model for the SIP, it is now possible to explain the quandaries highlighted by Hayes. The reduction in the male Asiatic population is not due to a series of unattested wars in the north, but rather as a result of a deliberate policy on the part of the Egyptian state to reduce the perceived Israelite threat by means of male infanticide, also described in Exodus 1:15 through 22 The origin of these foreigners is also explained they entered Egypt in the years following the arrival of Jacob and his immediate brethren into the land of Goshen. Proof number 63. Exodus chapter 7 begins the accounting of the ten great plagues of Egypt. Could the Bible's record be actually true? The historian uh, Flavius uh, Josephus was born just a few years after the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. In his histories, he writes concerning the plagues and records the following discourse in regard to the first plague. But when the king despised the words of Moses and had no regard at all to them, grievous plagues seized the Egyptians, every one of which I will describe, both because no such plagues that ever happened to any other nation as the Egyptians now felt, and because I would demonstrate that Moses did not fail in any one thing that he foretold them. 
and because it is for the good of mankind that they may learn this caution, not to do anything that may displease God, lest he be provoked to wrath and avenge their iniquities upon them. For the Egyptian river ran with bloody water at the command of God, insomuch that it could not be drunk, and they had no other spring of water neither. For the water was not only of the color of blood, but it brought upon those that ventured to drink it great pains and bitter torment. Such was the river to the Egyptians, but it was sweet and fit for drinking to the Hebrews, and no way different from what it actually naturally used to be. As the king therefore knew not what to do in these surprising circumstances, and was in fear for the Egyptians, he gave the Hebrews leave to go away. But when the plague ceased, he changed his mind again, and would not suffer them to go. End of quote. Concerning the tenth and ultimate plague, which was the slaying of the firstborn of Egypt, the following excerpt is from Haley's Bible Handbook under the heading, Archaeological Note. Death of Pharaoh's firstborn inscriptions have been found indicating that Thotmose IV, successor of Amenhotep II, was not his firstborn nor heir apparent. Also that Merneptas, firstborn, met death in peculiar circumstances, and his successor was not his firstborn nor heir apparent. So whichever the Pharaoh, the biblical statement is confirmed. End of quote. Proof number 64. One of the last things that happened to the Egyptian people before the physical exodus begins with their spoiling. Exodus two, uh, 3, excuse me, 21 and 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor, and of, and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. The following report is found in the International Jerusalem Post, November 28, 2003, page 31. The recent publicity garnered by the Egyptian professor who intends to file a lawsuit against the Jewish people and the state of Israel for the return of the gold, silver, and clothing taken by the Israelites when they left the Egyptian bondage over three millennia ago caused me to think how ancient scores are never really settled, at least when they involve the Jews. The academic who claims to be filing this class action suit is perhaps unaware that this tactic was attempted before. In fact, it was employed over 23 centuries ago when Alexander the Great ruled both Egypt and the land of Israel. The Talmud in Tractate Sanhedrin relates that Egyptian representatives appeared before Alexander and asked that he demand from the Jews the return of all of the wealth taken by them when they left Egyptian slavery a millennium earlier. Alexander sent a notice to the Jewish elders in Jerusalem asking for a representative to present the Jewish side of the dispute. The rabbi sent a man by the name of Gava, who was small in stature but very clever. His defense was that if one were to start down the slippery road of adjudicating ancient claims, then the Egyptians still owed the Jews for centuries of slave labor. Alexander, no fool himself, realized the morass that he had placed himself in by agreeing to judge the case and decided to dismiss the matter altogether. End of quote. Proof number 65. Exodus fourteen twenty one through 30. 
And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued, and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud, and troubled the host of the Egyptians, and took off their chariot wheels, that they drave them heavily. So that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the hosts of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, there remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. God uses a strong east wind blowing all night long to separate the Red Sea, so the children of Israel could escape Pharaoh and his pursuing Egyptian army, and use the same water as its watery walls collapsed upon Pharaoh and his army to destroy them. Unbelieving theologians and the skeptics of academia have consistently railed upon such an idea. Are their faces now red? Science experimentation weighs in. The headline of Biblical Archaeology Review reads, Scientists Part the Red Sea. The headline on Yahoo News, September 21, 2010 reads, Parting of Red Sea Jibes with Natural Laws. Archaeology shouts yes to the discovery of the mummified body of Pharaoh Merneptah, whose life dates to the parting of the Red Sea, who appears to have died as a result of an incredibly violent accident caused by water. Now, Hurricane Irma duplicates. New York Daily News, September 11, 2017 headline, Hurricane Irma was so powerful, it drained beaches, pulled water into its core as it trudged ahead. It reads, as Hurricane Irma barreled through the Bahamas on its way to the Florida Keys and the southwestern portion of the state, it pulled out ocean water with it, much to the surprise of island residents and those on social media. Irma, which made its first U.S. landfall in the Florida Keys on Sunday, was a Category 4 hurricane with maximum winds at 130 miles per hour. In the process, and in the days leading up to the landfall, the storm sucked water from the ocean away from its beaches. Facebook user Kelly Johnson posted a video, since deleted, and it was captioned, Long Island, Bahamas. There is no more ocean, as far as the eye can see, and they don't know where it went. Wow, Irma is more powerful than people think. Be safe, guys. In the video, people walked onto what used to be the seabed. There are no fish and hardly any remnants of water. As the water made its exodus, it left behind conch shells, seaweed, buoys, and an old anchor. End of quote. The Holy Bible is the inerrant truth, miracles and all. 
but it will only reveal its mysteries to the children of faith whose ears are humbled and bowed down. Choose Christ, choose life, and live. God said, Proverbs 3.19, The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. God said, Proverbs 11.19, As righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. God said, Ezekiel 16.6, And when I passed by thee, and saw thee polluted in thine own blood. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Man said, God didn't make man. Man made God. God is simply a figment of man's imagination. Everyone knows evolution made man. There was a big bang, and out of nothing, voila, out we popped. Isn't that liberating? Now you have the record.